information and money. These two indispensable political commodities were immediately pinpointed by Richard Nixon, with the election victory barely savoured in 68 as a cardinal to his re-election four years later. Even before Nixon's first inauguration, the instructions to White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman were meticulous. In a memo inadvertently released by the National Archives over Nixon's objection, he wrote that he wanted a huge build-up of funds during the first year. It stated funds should now be collected to take care of our deficit and transition expenses from those who failed to contribute before the election. In fact, rather than a deficit, Nixon carried away a secret surplus from the 1968 campaign. But even so, the ominous note in the memo about those who failed to contribute did not go unheeded by Nixon's collectors. And the difference from what his predecessors had done was Nixon's secrecy. There was to be a private fund for secret political purposes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is one of the sharpest film minds that I've ever encountered, uh, a dear and enduring friend, and we've talked many, many times on podcasts about all kinds of movies, mostly Michael Mann, but um, lately slipping even into the realms of Star Wars. Uh, it's kind of criminal that this guy is so damn good and he only does this now as a vocation. Uh, he is a deeply insightful person and if you want to follow him on Twitter, that is the best place to find an epic number of threads. Um, it's at Metaplex Movies. It's my friend, Brennan Hodges. Mate, this project wouldn't be this project unless you came on to say hello. Welcome. Oh my goodness. I can never live up to that. But thank you so much <laughs> for inviting me back. Well, you know, we've talked... Star Wars, so popular culture on the biggest scale. We've talked Michael Mann movies, you know, these existential masculine crises. And now we're diving into this nexus of politics, of history, of cinema, and of course of journalism at a time that it is an election year in the United States, and that is all the president's men. Um, it is going to be a fun one to talk to you about. A completely different set of muscles that we're flexing on this one than of our last couple of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And when you shared with me this was your topic for your next minute by minute podcast, I was ecstatic because it's a movie that I have revisited very frequently since I first saw it, which is probably like early college. Yes. And not for any high and noble political reason, it is just uh, somehow almost addictively engrossing. Yes. And once you fall into the rhythm of the movie, you're, you're for me anyway, I'm just gone. I, I get totally <laughs> sucked into the world. And I think part of it, and this is something I think we'll get into a lot, is the way it has information flow. Yes. And the way information is shaped. And that I really think is primarily what the movie is built around. And if you engage with that, and allow yourself to kind of go along with that flow, then it's probably going to become one of your favorite movies. There's not really, you know, I love how you said that the you engage with the information flow because so many movies I know that we both harp on are around the way that the exposition goes. They become these huge expository dumps and it ruins the flow of the movie. Whereas... All the President's Men is a movie that, by definition, is has to be heavy with exposition because you are building the story. But I think what is so clinical and so consuming is is exactly how that little it's like a leg like for people who are obsessed with Lego, it's like those little bricks of information start to build the story, and the way that that flows through is just so artful because you I don't think at any other point with a movie that is so deeply dense that you. Like that, that I am so engrossed as well. Like I turn this on so much. And, uh, you know, if, if for folks, if this is the first episode of All the President's Minutes you're listening to, welcome. If you've never heard an episode of anything on One Heat Minute Productions, welcome. Um, but this is the kind of thing that, you know, when I was doing the One Heat Minute podcast, like people would ask me what I was watching a lot. Um, at the time, like, are oh, you just watching Heat every day? And I was like, no, I actually, I watch it in chunks. I watch it in segments. The movie I was watching the most during that project was this one because I would just turn it on in the background of whatever I was doing, like whether it was researching or reading or making some notes or getting episodes happening. And even in silence, I could just have this movie 
on. It was a ve- it was a deep comfort. And then what happens is, you know, they say, you know, when you see mastery in one thing, sometimes you can see it in all things. And you then begin to, even though they're completely contrasting things, start to go, wait, this whole movie is effortless. Every performance is perfect. Every de- visual decision is incredible and sometimes avant-garde. And then you're like, okay, this there's a kinship in perfection, in like in you know rewatchability over and over again. Yeah, for sure. And I think part of that is the fact that it's kind of a hangout movie. Yes, too. It's very lived in the way that they hunch over in their chairs, or the way that they uh, Dustin Hoffman throws a cookie at <laughs> Robert Redford, and he says, "I don't want a cookie." Um, and speaking of that, it's a great food movie. And so there's kind of all these different elements of it that are incredibly humanizing and just makes you enjoy spending time with these characters more than anything else. And so I think that's part of why it's so easy to revisit just in addition to everything else that you've said that it does so well. The cinematography, Gordon Willis's gorgeous uh, shadow tinged frames where it I mean, today, if you made this movie, you could imagine studio executives being terrified over how, how dark it looks, <laughs> let alone what they would have said back then. And it, it's just gorgeous. Uh, the economy of the script, um, and you mentioned avant-garde, and I think that's a very interesting point to say, too, because speaking of information in the movie, it's interesting that, so th- I'm about to say something that a lot of people would disagree with. So I'm just going to preface that. Um, <laughs> welcome welcome so, to podcasting with me. I'm going to say something that lots of people are going to disagree with, but here we go. Absolutely. Um, people who've heard my episodes before or follow me on Twitter know I am a big Christopher Nolan person. Hmm. Now, a, something that I think is interesting about his work is that a lot of people would call Nolan very plot-oriented. And I actually strongly disagree with that. Mm. And I'll explain why. In Nolan's filmography, yes, there are these intricate, plotty uh, machines running through them. But I would say that really the end of those plots, the point of them is not really an end to itself. You're not supposed to enjoy the plot of a Nolan movie just on the plot level. He usually uses the plot almost as another paintbrush of feeling or almost abstraction at times. Yes. And I say that because it's so weird to have a movie use plot and a lot of information and a lot of exposition as a similar device as the abstract images. Yes. Um, You know, so, I mean, Interstellar is a really good example of this where the plot is like so overwhelmingly naughty and yet the movie is most similar of his films to like Nicholas Rogue or yes. Terrence Malick in a way um, where it's all this like free associative editing and abstract images, fire and ice, etc. And uh, this tangent I'm going in is because I think this movie does something very, very similar. But with the plot of the movie where it's using some of the devices of a procedural to paint a similarly impressionistic portrait of an experience. If you actually watch All the President's Men to understand the ongoings of Watergate and that investigation, you will leave the movie probably pretty confused. <laughs> yes. He leaves a lot of things not just out, but it's just not concerned with them. Like at all. No. It, instead, what it's concerned with is almost the energy of the characters going through this web of paranoia and how it affects them. So I I think that the movie does so many different things on so many different levels that it just really, really is easy to find things to hold on to that are outside of the conventional. And when a lot of people think of this movie as the grandfather of the newspaper procedural, you know, you might talk about the post by Spielberg or spotlight, which one best picture Um, 
when you think of those movies, I actually don't know if they're the best comparison because those movies do not paint with as abstract a brush no. as all presidents men. Um, those movies, are, in my mind, are structured more like some police procedurals where every plot point goes right next to the next plot point, and it's fine. All the presidents men does a similar thing, but often those elements are foregrounded so you can then go past that to experience the way the actors are reacting to it. Yeah, you, know, you you talking about abstract and inversion with Nolan and, and and people call him like it's the opposite of a humanist. Some people say he's like a dehumanist, like he's not he's not a humanistic guy. But I also think that that can kind of that butts up against his ability to cast people who bring such a deep humanity to things, and he knows how to he knows where the anchor points of the humanity is in the different things. Like you look at Inception, it's Joseph Gordon Levitt and Ellen Page's characters, and you look at the Batman trilogy, and the an- humanistic anchor is Alfred. Like he's our, our most human character who makes sense of the nuttiness of the decision for someone who's a billionaire to dress up like a bat and go beat up people vigilante style. Right. Um, and talking directly of Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey's like sort of Southern humanity and the twang of it, um, like it feels incongruous in some ways, but it feels perfect when it's paired because it's incongruous to plot heavy scientific stuff when you're just talking to someone who feels so deeply relatable. And what you said there so perfectly about the procedural nature of those other movies, The Post, which obviously is an epic fan of this movie in every single way, um, oh, yeah. and, and, and Spotlight is I feel like those movies begin with a tipping point and then wrestle with it. So the, the and most procedures do this. There's a the tipping point is the beginning. It is the initiating. It is the it is the narrative drive. There is something that happens, and then it's reacting to the happening and reporting on the happening and uncovering and unearthing because you know that something has happened. And what I think is so beautifully weird, and it only just occurred to me talking to you, and that's what I love about minute by minute examinations because things come up even though I think I know this movie, is that like the tipping point, this movie is about reaching a tipping point and then denying the audience the downhill slope. It's like all grinding up the hill and never getting never getting to like stream down at, at light speed, those, those few teletyped words on the end. And so I think that inversion of it maybe is what's so addictive because so many times we start with that tipping point. And then the momentum of that realization is what fuels the rest of those investigations. You know, at the beginning of Spotlight, you know that some bad stuff has had in, happened in the Catholic Church and it's this, you know, archaeological dig to uncover it. And you know that there's bad stuff in the Pentagon Papers. And what's beautiful about this Watergate drama, um, <laughs> All the President's Men, is that you don't actually know what the hell it even is. Like, they just know that something is wrong something is wrong. Like, why are they there? Who are these people? Why do they have this much money? Why is there a slimy lawyer here? What, like, the why, 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 why to the root cause just keeps, un, like, it's like trapdoor after trapdoor after trapdoor. And then the context of the worlds that they're in, they're just, they're just focusing on this stream of light of where they are. And then at the end, you can sort of see the whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you pointed out something that is absolutely essential, which is, Arguably, even as we sit here in 2020, we don't totally understand Watergate and um, exactly the extent of what was covered up and why. And there's a couple throwaway lines late in the movie about how the cover up by Nixon wasn't even about Watergate, but it barely even implies what it was about. It just... And this is kind of what I, mean, what I mean when I talk about abstraction in the film. I think the in a typical procedural, if the movie's ending was, oh, we actually know less in a way than we did when the movie began. <laughs> the movie begins making you think it's about Watergate and it ends with you realizing, oh, no, Watergate is opening a door to a web of almost unsolvable mystery. And that would be an anti-climax in almost any other movie. But the way this movie is assembled, it doesn't feel that way. No. Uh, because it's not about that necessarily. Um, and I, so I think that's a key element of what separates all the president's men from these other movies. Um, and you say it's trapdoors within trapdoors and everything. And that's absolutely the case. And in, in some ways, 
there's this idea of uh, journeying through um, thresholds yes. and bureaucracy. And I can think of few films that this beautifully that uh, articulate this beautifully, just the terrible uh, machinery of a bureaucracy in motion and uh, the failure of it. I mean, there's that great scene that opens Kurosawa's Ikaru where they're trying to get uh, something with a park. There's all these women trying to get something with a park resolved and they go from department to department to department and they each tell them, oh, no, no, you have to go over here. It's not. A- <laughs> and I mean, it's essentially this movie in action um, in a way. It's like a microcosm of it. And I, so I think that it really is about, in a weird way, uh, bringing an impressionistic edge to a bureaucratic machinery. And that is what gives it its like its edge of paranoia as the movie continues because it is this machinery is both very concrete it is in front of us you could walk into these buildings you could talk to these uh government employees and yet you seem to get absolutely nowhere it it is in some way very kafka-esque um in the truest sense (laughs) in the truest sense because you i love how you described as like the machine and it's there and it is tangible but what happens is just like everything in this movie, it it appears as it is for a brief second to identify it. It's almost like right then and there, it would be like looking at a doppelganger of someone you know. You like look at it and you're like, oh, there's my friend. And then you look again and it's like, no, there is something. No, that's not them. This is weird. And my favorite thing is like around some of the things that we're talking about in the minute which we haven't gotten to yet, guys. So just know that Brandon and I, this is the way we have conversations. So we'll have to just briefly interject and jump, bump them in and in after this point. But it's um, that moment of phone call, which is, can you give me, and it's a forthcoming minute, but just to illustrate the point, it's, hey, I'm just wondering if you can give me the records of everything that was taken out from the, from the Library of Congress regarding Teddy Kennedy by persons of interest in the in the case and at first it's yes of course i can right please hold beat 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 (laughs) no i don't have that information no no one in the white house has ever done anything with teddy kennedy no i've never even heard of that person you're referencing see you later right and so that's I think that's the modus operandi of this entire movie which is like you feel like you're getting a feel for it and you know the great guidance of deep throat is like just follow the money for this like this is the tip of a spear if you keep if you keep taking it too big too wide too early it's too hard for people to understand um and i think that that's something in modern journalism which is why certain things resonate sorry i just wanted to see someone was in here cut that out um (laughs) which is why certain things resonate because it's you get to that you get to that moment in some big cases and the ones that are more focused and more targeted and more have that more cut through, like really laser in on a, a different topic, they seem to have more resonance. Whereas if you're trying to do everything all at once, people get lost because it the, the machine is designed for us to get lost. Yes, a- a- absolutely. Um, and I do think that this idea, this theme plays very well into our minute. So why don't we dive into the minute Look, right now he's so good he's segueing this show for me so we're going to quickly dive into this minute and watch it together and then you guys are going to come back and we're going to talk about it well somebody hired them i'm not interested in what you think is obvious i'm interested in what you know what we don't know is why they wanted to bug democratic headquarters whether they're working for themselves or other individuals or other organizations could be a story or it could just be crazy cuban Bushinsky, when you get down there tonight take it easy the police are nervous Yep. Krasinski calling from police headquarters. Yep. Friend just showed me what they found in the hotel rooms of the Watergate burglars. There's something here you might want to look into. Hang on. Okay, go ahead. There's a strange entry in two of the burglars' address books. Yeah. One says HH at WH. The other says Howard Hunt, W House. You can dial the White House direct, can't you? Yeah. What's the number? Four, five, six. One four one four. 
HH at WH. Howard Hunt at W House. <laughs> what a wonderful little sliver of information. Thank you to his source in police headquarters for bringing that to the lovely Bob Wood. Infamous as a, as a journalist for just having a litany of sources. But I love the transitions in this. I love his house. I think we can cover everything. I love... I, I deeply, deeply love Jack Warden um, in this movie, <laughs> which is pretty, is pretty obvious in the opening minutes as Harry Rosenfeld, you know, and I love his uh, turn of phrase that he's not interested in what people feel that this is, but what it is. And so this minute is absolutely loaded. We get a newsroom moment, we get Woodward at home, and you get to see the chaos of his house, chaos, beautiful chaos that it is, papers. Um, strewn on one, on top of one another, tirelessly working, copy type all over the place, um, newspaper stack next to an unmade bed in this one-bedroom place, and then back into the office the next day in that beautiful transition of handwriting. It's such a beautiful, eloquent cut of like handwriting in his notepad at home and then circling it the next day, armed and ready to start making his calls. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this particular minute is key to just what makes the movie work. It if if you were to watch the movie and try to identify the most important minutes of the film, this is probably not one of the ones most people would go to, but I actually think the way it transitions mm. between scenes and between um it almost reroutes our flow of information. Yes. From point a to b um like like a river where they reroute rivers or the flow of different rivers it's very similar to that in this way and for example like the first 14 or 15 seconds is really the end of a previous scene where they're deliberating is this something worth pursuing is this something that happened in a vacuum or was it connected to some kind of shadowy uh, goings on. Yes. Um, and I think what's so important about this is that it just kind of effortlessly cuts to the home life of Bob Woodward. And it, it's such an interesting decision because he's only home in this little segue for a few seconds. So it's such an interesting decision because they so easily could have just cut from these opening 14 or 15 seconds where it's a group scene. I think there's like five people in that particular scene. They could have easily just cut to Woodward's desk. The next but day. But they don't. Exactly. Not even the next day. They could have just had it. They just had, it, had, had him walk to the desk and take the phone. You know what I mean? Yeah, take they the phone call, yeah. They just go to be very direct, but they didn't. And I think this is interesting for a few reasons. One of them is it, it shows a certain temporal scale to the movie mm. where there's all these little interludes throughout the film that really painlessly communicate a passage of time. And I say painlessly in contrast to uh, one of my favorite movies, but I, I ever, but I do think that it, it's meant to make the viewer a little uncomfortable, which is Zodiac. Yes. Where, its transitions are not painless where the movie's pacing is deliberately slow and frustrating. And in all the president's men, you, it, it's not like they pad out the running time, but they pad out the amount of time we're supposed to experience the movie through. Yes. Right. So there's all these little moments throughout that gives you a sense of time passing. Um, all these little ellipses throughout, but the movie uh, doesn't get hurt by that. It, it actually helped the economy of the storytelling is to the benefit of the movie. And I would say that w one other thing is part of the continuity is because we are less interested in, to some extent than uh, in the characters doing a to B because we don't necessarily know what precipitated that phone call. No. Did he call various sources and he got, how did this call exactly come about? What exactly was he looking for? We don't totally know. Um, we're more interested in this almost a, the character of information itself where in the previous scene, yes. we're like, do we have a, enough information to continue? 
going into this web of uh, mystery. And this very next scene says, yes, we do. Yes. And so it's answering that question is on, on an informational level. And then it cuts right from his private life back into his professional life. And I think we, 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 uh, our first real introduction to Woodward is him waking up. Yes. Right? Uh, a couple of minutes before our minute here. And so the movie immediately creates this contrast um, between the, the personal and the professional or even the personal and the political or maybe even the fact that the mediary between these two spheres of life, the professional and the personal, is the political. Maybe the political sphere is the thing that connects them and bridges them together to some extent. And, and, the, and, pursuit, the, movie, and the pursuit of information. Because yeah. that, that, I think, is such a – at this stage of the movie, it is all about acceleration. So it's – we get a bombshell in the courtroom. We go and agonize over it with Harry and his Metro editorial team. And they're sort of – and they're, they're intentionally busting any theories of the story, to your point exactly. Like, is there enough information to even go on? And it is only the, the addition of another source, another layer – who doesn't sleep, who will call him at night before he then has to sort of go about his business and start calling people at a reasonable time in the daytime in Washington. But the inference is that he gets this phone call. He then can take it back to Harry and the Metro team the next day. So you don't need to see another stupid team where he's like, hey, Harry, I got a call from someone in police who told me this bit of information. I'm going to go do it. The movie goes, no, we don't need that because I'm telling you that he gets this information. We know that he goes and fact checks it with Harry and, and gets his editorial guidance and he goes about his business. And so yep. it's so effortless in that way. And I love, let's mention Zodiac. It has been mentioned before. David Fincher is uh, is a, a disciple, a mentee of the incredible William Goldman. But I love David Fincher for everything that makes him an extremist. And uh, it's so wonderful that he takes some of the agony of the slog uh, – of the slog of the middle of this film where they're just hitting roadblock after roadblock and there's no new there's no new breakthroughs and he takes that to the most extreme case with Zodiac and I think that that is what makes Zodiac that's what elevates Zodiac to another level as well like as, as oh. an investigative story because it's that complete disarray with which everyone flounders in the middle of that movie that is so deeply human and it, it anchors the entire film. If they didn't have no, if, if if that investigation was solved, it is an episode of TV. But it right. is not. <laughs> it is right. not. No, uh, absolutely. And I also think there's a lot of uh, fun foils between Zodiac and other President's Men. One of them being both movies ultimately end in some form of an anticlimax, mm. where we don't really understand the inner workings of the mystery itself. Um, in you know, one case, we don't really know who the Zodiac killer is. And in the other case, as, I, as we said earlier, we don't ever really understand the full scope of what Nixon was doing uh, behind the scenes. And But on the other hand, the movie leaves us with very compelling, uh, let's say, interpretations yes. of evidence and information. But I think both movies very much paint... Uh, with opacity that they very much leave yeah. the viewer um, with a certain unease and un uncertitude. Now the difference of course is that Zodiac ends with a gut punch anticlimax, whereas all the president's men ends with clearly the events that eventually lead to Nixon leaving office. So I think that there's an element of victory implicit in the Watergate scandal that you just don't have in Zodiac. And so that, that is a very key difference but on, on a lot of other levels, I think that they're both movies about um, journalists who confuse the line between uh, professionalism and their own integrity. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. So is it to be more professional or less professional to put your life on the line for a story? Okay, well, what about when you're getting other people's lives in danger for a story? Yes. And that's something both movies deal with to one extent or another. To the extent where uh, Woodward and Bernstein seem to have accidentally gotten multiple people at the newspaper, uh, their, their homes get bugged. Yes. 
and and they kind of caused all this. If they weren't investigating the story, so I think it plays with these blurred lines of what does it mean to be a good reporter, and does being a good reporter mean that you have to give more of yourself into the profession than you would think is, let's say, healthy? And the mo- <laughs> both movies definitely paint this idea of uh, no, but maybe. And, and it, is it, that it not the most perfect answer to that question, though? That blurred line question. <laughs> it's like, is it is it is it is it right that you have to give your life to a cause to to, to 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 turn an investigation into a cause, no matter right. the impacts that it has to your life? And the answer uh, is exactly what you said. No, but maybe. And I think both right. of <laughs> it's like it's it's like these guys these these guys' dedications um, cause the breakthrough. But is that is that the life of every story or every journalist or every investigator? Not necessarily, but it's just one of those things that if the if the investigation is tight is is as Titanic as true crime in as Zodiac, you know, the the impact of that, and then obviously Watergate for the political implications for the country. It's like, you know, arguably much much more significant. But it's it's like, yeah, it's like sometimes you don't know. And that's what, you know, probably that analogy of trapdoors comes in is like, you don't know you've stepped into the life endangerment trapdoor until someone three trapdoors later says, your house is bugged. <laughs> and, right. And or your, your lives life, are in danger. And your lives are in danger. Right. As Deep Throat says. Um, no, ab- absolutely. And so I, I think the movies, I mean, also it, uh, in, all, in the case of All the President's Men especially, uh, Woodward and Bernstein are continually... Uh, chided for the fact that they're relatively inexperienced. They're green yes. in the industry. Um, I love that Bernstein uh, kind of um, trolls Woodward when he's like, <laughs> oh, I know you've only been here for nine months, nine months and I for some 16. Oh, <laughs> you know, wow, that's so, so many more Bernstein. You're, you know, it, compared to these guys who have been in there for decades. Yes. I mean, he's bragging about the difference of months. So th- they're both... And, and and not only that, but Bernstein was also nearly fired, it's, it's said. So it's like both of them are very green. And I think the fact that they are so inexperienced, on one hand, they emphasize this to, you know, help dramatize the stakes. So you feel like you're in the trenches with these couple of guys. But I think it's also to emphasize the fact that is, is the exact um, definition of their flaws as people. Yes. And maybe... And journalists, the very thing that this story needed. Yeah, you can't you you can't think. It is a completely different journalism as hero movie, right? Like even as far back as like Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, which is such a fun, which is a, just a journalism as hero romp. But it does have an edge. It does have a wonderful edge of sardonic humor that is just beautiful, uh, as you would expect from the master. But oh, yeah. but. I love how many times these guys maybe get things wrong and how they evolve. And it just comes back to the temporal, exactly like you said. Cinema, cinematic time, there's something so boring about procedural time in television and films. Some When you function with procedural time and everything is just like blistering speed, you know, there's no delineation between what's real time, what's happening in, you know, long lengthy periods. And and momentum is just so that we can get to the end of this thing and, and solve the mystery. It's really boring. And what is great about this film, and you mentioned with Zodiac, is the temporality is, it is stretched. This is over a long period of time. And what we're seeing, and the, the times and the waypoints that you measure it, in some ways you do it in a really clever way here where you show their home lives, you show that they're coming back and in and out of the office and they duck into home, they're out of home. The other thing is how, how much you see these guys go from green and being on the outside and functioning by themselves and just working exclusively with Harry at Metro to then when they roll in, and every meeting they're having is with the entire heads of the editorial teams of the Washington Post. <laughs> like that shows time, aptitude, trust. And they're no longer having an argument with Harry and his two editorial assistants or partners that say, yes, this is good for Metro or no. They're standing there with Ben Bradley, who's accounting, you know, obviously he's accounting for the editorial reputation of the Washington Post as a whole. 
and they're there right there in the trenches with those people. And so it doesn't do things as overt or as agonizing as Zodiac in that respect. What it does is it does show the passage of time through like long stretches or big chunks of information they've learned about someone. There's a great one where um, Bernstein finally gets around to the interview on the whole rat fucking saga. And in the book, that's a long chunk. Like there's a big chunk of time where they're just painting the pictures on the outside before they even find Donald Segretti, before Donald Segretti will even be seeing them, before you know they can find anyone who's even tangentially connected to him. And so there's this great chunk where they've just been agonizing for months and months and months over this thing and there's lots of big things and then he's right there. So it's so good, so good that you watch their aptitude grow, but also when they finally get to that point of like, if we're wrong, we're off the story. You really know the stakes. Like there's not many films in journalism films where the, where there's a tipping point moment, like, you know, Mark Ruffalo gets the hero moment of spotlight where he's like, they did this, they hit it. They did it. Like he gets that moment. That's his like Oscar reel. Um, but what is so excellent, um, in this, it's like two guys going, if we're wrong, we're off the story. <laughs> like, there's no hero moment there. If we're wrong, well, we're it, off it. I think it's very interesting structurally in the movie where they never really stop screwing things up. <laughs> yes. I mean, even very, very late in, into the I mean, the final minutes come down to the fact that um, Bernstein uh, didn't make a clear enough explanation to a source on the phone whether to confirm or deny something yes i mean that that's fundamentally like the, I'm, what i'm referring to is when late in the film he says uh and if you're still like i'm going to say something and if you're still here it means you're confirming or whatever and um he's like oh he got confused which is obviously his fault because bernstein's job is to make sure that his source understands what they're confirming and how they're confirming it so I think that plays to the just the element of humanity that runs through the movie. And I also think that there's something weirdly like comforting watching two people continually screw up <laughs> yes. and they just keep working. It's weirdly nice to and see just a couple of really good people at their job just keep screwing up and you and they, they just do it and you're like I sh- I'll do that I'll keep screwing up but I'll keep improving and there, there is something weirdly uh comforting about that I think it's the most comforting it and it's it's the thing that you miss the thing you yearn for the comfort of this movie as I like god when you've got a great editor that you ever work for and they can you know, whether it's virtually or literally put a red pen through something and say you don't have it. Like just, I, I that's one phrase in this movie I, I'm going to keep saying, you don't have it. I say it to myself now yeah. if I'm reading something I've produced and I get to a point, I'm like, you don't have it. And maybe it needs to just be shut for 10 minutes. I need to walk away from it. I need to go back and think about it. And I love that because there's many points where these guys sort of think they have it. And then when you take it to another layer, you take it to another lens, you don't have it. But they've got that protection. Like, they know they're on the right track. They haven't been as incisive as they could have been. They haven't been as direct as they could have been. They haven't been as, you know, capable as they could have been. But I think that that plays to your great contrast of a gut punch at the end of Zodiac, which is like, bang, it hits you in the guts. And you're like, got a revelation, but it's still a complete and utter anticlimax. Um, Whereas when Nixon's being sworn in at the end of this movie and we know what's coming, the comfort is... Right. Just two guys actually working, doing it. And we know they're good. Like, they're good. They've got what they need. And it, and it may not be information, but they know the guys that are at the end of this movie are not the guys we met at the beginning. They are now, like, right. two of America's great journalists. The guys who right. are equipped for that moment. So much so that even when, like, you heard that Bob Woodward was writing a book on Trump, like, people were like, yes, he's here, <laughs> he's back. He's right. going to do it. Like that, that minute when they're like, at the end, if you can have their keyboards ringing in your ears forever, it's like, oh, if, as long as people are working like tirelessly for that truth to be out there, that's in the public interest to get out there and holding things to account is okay. And maybe that's like an anticlimax in and of itself because we know how 2020 is. Like We know how politics turned out. <laughs> maybe that's an anticlimax in and of itself. But that's that's that great transition of... Of, of aptitude and doing things wrong and you don't have it. Well, I also think it leaves a legacy of accountability 
emanating from journalism into that machine of bureaucracy that we talked about. Yes. And uh, speaking of things that are comforting, and maybe this is why part of the reason I, I find the movie so rewatchable is there's something kind of beautifully affirming about it. Yes, there so much is left unresolved and in a weird way that just feels true to reality. I mean, it, anytime you go out trying to seek all the information, there's so much left unsaid, undiscovered, unresolved. But you, it, it, the movie presents the viewer with some amount of closure, but it also kind of leaves this almost like um, uh, the, the film ends with this changing of the guard in a way. Yes. Where there's this new status quo who are hungry to combat um, di- different uh, corrupt sources of governance. And one thing that I've often said about the movie is that if there's a single movie that I would show to really um, capture a certain element of the political atmosphere of the 70s, uh, it, it would be All the President's Men. And I don't say that just because of the historical significance of Watergate. I also mean this more in terms of the sense that this is a movie where you have a lot of corrupt um, political machinery. You have a lot of people in power who should not be in power and are in fact abusing that power. You have a generation that, um, uh, of people who are in middle age now who are tired and distrustful of the government and they just feel beaten down. And yet you have this kind of youthful energy that's exploding from the ground floor up. Yes. That's retaking the status quo and almost in a weird way, uh, both Woodward and Bernstein are like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. <laughs> yes. Where, <laughs> yes. um, I mean, they're full of hope trying to disassemble this evil status quo. And that dichotomy between um, kind of the dark forces emanating through and permeating the 70s and then this surge of optimism, and we can fix it, we can change it if we are active enough to Um, I I think that's a very resonant idea, and I think that is part of why this film feels timeless. Um, And I don't just mean in the very obvious comparison to Trump. I just mean it feels timeless because there are so many situations in life where you see a division of uh, people who want to instigate change somehow and they need to fight for it one way or another. Yes. I mean, it's really all the president's men. It's part of the underdog subgenre. Yes. You know, um, there's, you know, there's a David and Goliath element to it. And I, I think that's kind of key to what it's trying to wrestle with and get at. Um, so I, I think that's kind of key. And I would also say that um, people have been saying through like every major war and presidency in the like the last 20 years that, oh, all the president's men just feel so prescient now <laughs> to the current political landscape. Like I heard it all through the Bush era. Um, I heard it like both presidencies, the war in the Middle East, the war on terrorism, all of that. And now with Trump, they're saying, oh, no, it's so pre- I, I think we need to accept it's always prescient. Yes. Is what I'm trying to drive at. It's, and it's about, I think it's about layers of how prescient it is. At all times, journalism is a great mechanism to hold these corrupting forces of political machinery into, in, in check because the humanity, the, the inherent humanity of all of these machines, if you like, like the human element is that people sometimes are good or bad or all the layers that are in between. And when right. you get into those situations, you don't know what that is going to do to you. And like that, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. It's like that whole stupid uh, but very, <laughs> very like true um, like phrase is it just – writ large throughout history it's like people abuse power when they're there and the comforts of power um, that are afforded to them so it's just like we will do anything to maintain it and so that's the that's the weird thing it's always pressing it and, and it feels like it becomes more pressing they turn the dial up when journalism is being attacked mm-hmm. 
and other things like in the Bush era, it's that let's be aware that political fuckery is going on and make sure that we're addressing that there's polit- – like let's not make an assumption that there's none because the spin cycle right. of the Bush presidencies were very good at harnessing the fear and the – you know, the terrible situations that were born out of international, like, turmoil at that time with 9-11 and all those things and then, like, just threw a whole bunch of nasty things under the rug while people were as fearful of the way of life as possible. And then it takes a few years to reset and go, holy shit, there was a lot of political fuckery going on. And it's like even now in 2019, you get the great report, um, the report uh, by Scott Z. Burns and starring Adam Driver, and it's like, hey, remember... uh, (laughs) Remember Zero Dark Thirty? That's CIA propaganda. <laughs> like we used Hollywood to make CIA propaganda. It might be entertaining CIA propaganda, but nonetheless, it's just a CIA propaganda film. Like Lenny Riefenstahl's films, <laughs> The Driver right. of the Will is Nazi propaganda. Like that's what it is. And so I think it's yeah. I I think you're so spot on. The work of keeping things to account should never stop. Nor should it be like done any less tirelessly than these guys execute it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also think that going into uh, the Bush era and kind of cataloging this tradition of journalism in the United States in particular over the last, you know, many decades here, uh, before I was born to now and I was born in 91, and I was raised in very political households. So like all this stuff, I certainly absorbed in the background, if not, you know, totally aware at a young age. I think that it's very important to be very suspicious and very skeptical of information and where it comes from. And something that I think is really important in the movie is the, and this is basic journalism vetting where they want multiple sources. Yes. And to some extent, I think that over time, the, uh, uh, the, the stewardship of the public space of information has decayed a little bit. And I don't mean that in the sense of criticizing journalists. I mean that in the sense that the public is less discerning. Yes. I mean that in the sense that if they hear something, they are very likely to take it at face value. And that is something that is an emerging trend over time. And I think it's something to be you know, very scared of. And obviously I think that something that all the president's men serves as a reminder of is, even if in your gut you feel that you might be right about something, in your heart of hearts you might be right about it, you could be wrong and you need to let the information to some extent dictate it for you. Yes. Now, the information comes from sources and you have to vet those sources and you have to be thoughtful about them. And I think that part of the uh, legacy of the film is kind of screaming from the mountaintops, be very discerning, very patient, very skeptical with what your conclusions are until you know where your information is coming from. Yes. And I think that's, I mean, we talked before about Woodward and Bernstein gaining aptitude and uh, excellence in their profession over time. Um, And I think a key part of that is uh, they're both kind of writing bullshit at the start. (laughs) And you like they seem like they didn't have it and they didn't even they had their guts to be a little wrong because they got in the way of themselves too. And I think the movie in some level, it's not didactic. It's not necessarily saying, oh, you're bad. Here's the way to do it. But I do think it's saying, please, (laughs) please, if you are in a position where you're trying to educate yourself, do so with care and realize your biases are usually self-serving. In the case of all the president's men, they wanted to be the hot reporters on this big story. So they wanted to rush out as much copy as they could. But there's other real world consequences that we all grapple with. And I do think that it's a major part of the movie just to say, okay, sit back, educate yourself, listen to mentors, listen to people who uh, might disagree with you but might know something that you don't and move on from there. It's the only way to grow. That is the perfect out for this episode. It's the only way to grow. This this odd couple who 
when Bernstein hears that Woodward is a Republican, does a quadruple take or a quintuple <laughs> take. You need to have those be ready to hear objectively and thoughtfully from people who disagree with you. And because he's so great, and I want to make sure that he has great clarity, I want to thank a huge, 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 hugely thank uh, Brendan Hodges for being a part of all the President's Minutes. I'm sure he'll be back, but I just want to double check that he will be back by saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to Stay on the phone right here as we're talking. And I'm going to give you 10 seconds. And if you're still on the line, Brendan, after 10 seconds time, then you will be back. And just to be clear, if you're still there, you're coming back on the show at another minute in time for us to unpack more things together. So I'm just going to leave you for 10 seconds. All right. It, it does look like I'm still here. Do, do, do you understand? <laughs> Is this clear? It's clear. I understand. Thank you, mate, for being a part of the show. I appreciate you, and I appreciate you being a part of the show. Yep, absolutely. My pleasure. That, of course, was my friend, the great Brendan Hodges. If you want to follow up on Brendan and see what he's up to and see his thoughts about movies more frequently than perhaps his appearances on these podcasts, uh, you can look at him uh, on Twitter at metaplexmovies.com. That is the best place to find him. Um, And he will often go on some very cool, lengthy threads that are always fun to engage with thank you brennan so much once again for being a part of the show uh, it's it's essential to have you here thank you so much again for listening to all the president's minutes and anything on the one heat minute productions feed i'm your host blake howard and producer of increment vice as well as everything that's been happening on the one heat minute productions feed if you want to follow me simply go to at one blake minute on instagram and on twitter or to oneheatminute.com to find out everything that's happening with the show and about the show. If you guys want to support us, we have a link on oneheatminute.com to our Patreon. If you can spare even a couple of bucks a month, the cost of a coffee a month you are going to be contributing to this show, The Amazing Increment Vice, and any other amazing shows that are a part of One Heat Minute Productions. Thank you so much in advance. If you can't support us, you don't have the cash, that's totally fine, but please subscribe, rate, review, and share the shows. We would love, if you are digging the show, share them with like-minded film folk around the place. Thank you so much once again for listening to this episode. We'll catch you on another episode of All the President's Minutes and another episode in the One Heat Minute Productions feed very soon.